Welcome to episode six of season three of Saltgrass, Turning the Goldfields Green. Today we speak with Natalie Moxham, a Castlemaine resident of over 10 years and a driving force in the Castlemaine Commons YouTube series, which was created recently to look at how our community was managing the various factors playing out in this time of pandemic. I wanted to talk to her because she has travelled the world and worked in many vulnerable communities, helping people create change. And as we know, change at all levels is what is required if we are to keep our global temperatures at a safe level into the future. In this conversation, we hear about Natalie's career and how she came to be a change maker and a movement builder. We discuss power and empowerment and who owns change and why place is so important. As ever, I'd like to acknowledge that Natalie and I both live on Jara country, home of the Jajawurrung. They are traditional custodians of this land and sovereignty was never ceded. I pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. I thought we'd start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your life and your career and, and how do you even describe what it is you do? Yes, well white middle-class girl from the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne. We discovered, got, finally got into horticulture through second or third rounds and then eventually into a degree at RMIT where I did socio-environmental political assessment and policy, which was looking at environment issues and social issues together. And I kind of discovered the world of activism and Friends of the Earth and things like that when I was on campus. I was on campus for a probably about six years, and I was a student activist, very heavily involved in an organisation called Left Alliance across campus. And then eventually I ended up in the middle of Central Australia working for the Central Land Council in the late 90s. And there I was working on Aboriginal land management. There was three or four of us in the Central Land Council land management department. And we were involved, I think it was a pretty seminal time in the development of kind of Aboriginal land management practices and land rights and native title. It was before Mabo and the 10-point plan. Yeah, right. For listeners who may not know the Mabo case very well, it was like one of the first Aboriginal land rights success cases, wasn't it? It was pretty historic. Yeah, it was quite historic. It fundamentally challenged the concept of terra nullius. So when Captain Cook arrived, they declared Australia terra nullius, which terra means land and nullius means there are no people. So there are no people in this land, it is empty, which then categorised Aboriginal people as animals. And hence came forth their lack of status. Well, Mabo overturned that. So that's what the Marbo case did. And the determination or the yeah, the determination in the Marbo case basically said Aboriginal people have always been here and they have title because this is their country. And so they have native title. And then the instant moment that the determination by the High Court was made, Aboriginal people had their title 
recognised across the country in that instant. That's huge, isn't it? Yes. And then came the Native Title Act, which said, hey, wait a minute, we can't have that (laughs) because... Because then you'd own everything and we want it. (laughs) Yes, something like that. (laughs) Yeah. So then the Native Title which was a, a process through which that native title could be recognised. So the assumption is it's always there, always has been, and through native title it will be recognised. So, so people don't claim native title. It's a recognition process. So therein lies that process. Right. So you were working in Aboriginal land management before Mabo happened. Yeah. Uh, well, it was it was in train as we were doing it. Um, and then I shifted back to Victoria and worked for the then Native Title Organisation for Victoria. So the similar Land Council for Victoria, which was called Nurembiak Nations Aboriginal Corporation. And I was the first land management officer there. So I was working alongside all the people that were doing land rights and native title work in with the 18 tribes across Victoria. It was very much an era where I'd go to work with land management agencies. We were, we were funded under the Na- National Heritage Trust, so like Landcare, and very much I'd go to different organisations like Greening Australia and the Catch-up Management Authorities and any land management Landcare organisations, and they'd go, what Aboriginal people? <laughs> so that very much was the attitude at that time. Yeah. So one of the things we did was a mapping project. We mapped all the Aboriginal land managers across Victoria and then present, kept presenting that to people and saying, oh, here's a number of Aboriginal people with some land and they've got a weed issue. Are they involved with the weed program? <laughs> like that. So it sounds like you had to tread quite carefully. Yeah. Well, the Marbo and the Ten Point Plan, all that backlash was happening at the time. And what Aboriginal people were asking for was to get back onto country. So I was using the land care grants and process to get people onto country. So we were just taking trips to country that needed to be revegetated or the weeds needed managing. And there was a sacred site there that we needed to visit and look after. So that's what we were doing. And it was about building relationships, but getting people on country. Yeah. That was back in the early, late 90s, early 2000s. However, what was significant back in that time was the establishment of the Indigenous Protected Areas Program across Australia. And then soon after that came the Indigenous Rangers Program. And so those two programs back then, which is what we were working on and establishing and lobbying for, have then rolled out across the country and got significant amount of resources and have led to a significant both environmental, ecological and social outcomes for Aboriginal people. Huge, huge impact on their life. In a positive way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really great. It's, it's interesting to me that it's so recent because that's only 30 years ago that you were doing that. Mm. Mm. I guess it's it's pretty recent and it's also a while ago. When you say it's 30 years ago, it's like, but like in terms of shifting society's attitudes about things, these things do take time. Yeah, they do. And I was part of a national Aboriginal land care program. There was 13 of us and two of us weren't Aboriginal, myself and one other guy. Everybody else was Aboriginal. And, you know, we were on that cutting edge of policy development nationally at, at that time in all these national programs now. 
now I look back and we say, well, was it that long? But it was a long time because 50% of those Aboriginal people that I worked with have passed away in that time, you know, in terms of life expectancy. That, that's, that plays out the, the current statistics. So that's been real for me. Yeah, the people you'd known and worked with so closely. Yeah. All right, so I know you've worked overseas and worked with communities overseas to create change. How did working with the Indigenous population of Australia transition? How did you transition to moving more global? Yeah, so during my 30s when I was having children and working throughout Aboriginal communities in Victoria, I was having babies and um, things like that. I transitioned, I had undertaken an international development master's and that really got me thinking more deeply about what I was doing. And fundamentally, I think I was inspired by empowerment theories and um, practice. A lot of my work was in and around how do we as white people do empowerment and what does that mean and what does that look like practically on the ground? And how do we get it right? And how do we not just get it right, but how do we... I remember this workshop I was in in Central Australia. It was a five-day workshop. And there was, I don't know, 10 Aboriginal people, 10 white people, and we had a lovely day on the first day. On the second day, a few of the Aboriginal people didn't attend. On the third day, a few more Aboriginal people didn't attend. And then on the fourth day, there was no Aboriginal people there. All the white people, meanwhile, were having a lovely conversation and we were all agreeing with each other and making lovely decisions. And then at the end of the fourth day, I thought, what, what's happening here? Like, it's not, it's not right. And I went, I'm going to be a facilitator that runs workshops where the opposite happens. And so then I set out to do this international development degree and uh, apprenticed myself to a number of different practitioners and I figured out how to do it. And so I then proceeded to do that. Yeah, it took me, you know, a good 10, 15 years to figure it out how to do it. At that time also... East Timor happened. I think I got jack of federal government policies and, you know, doing, you know, working with great people on the ground, doing great work, and then the federal government would just axe the program. So I needed a change and I worked on East Timor for probably an East Timor Friendship Project for about three or four years and that really taught me about international development. Again, can you give us a bit of context about what was happening in Timor at that time? Yeah, so they um, wanted independence from Indonesia. In the end, the Australian the people in Australia demonstrated and the Australian government sent troops in there. And so East Timor got independent. So the Australian government actively facilitated their independence? Yes, yes, with the UN. They led the UN mission. I mean, there was you know, a, huge, a huge story behind how that came yes, about. Yes, sure. And as a result, one of the things that Australian citizens did was establish friendship groups which means local governments here in Australia made a friendship with the local government there and aid and development went directly from one locality to East Timor. And I was involved in two or three of those programs and employed as the project officer to do that work. And then from that, I then left that job and started to run my own business as a movement builder, program designer, facilitator, strategizer, that sort of thing. I've been running that business, Lianganok Yarn, for 10, 11, maybe 12 years now. It's really difficult to explain to people what I do. And the the word empowerment doesn't really come across very well. People don't use that word. But in essence, that's what I do. I'm a change maker. 
So I thought, well, nobody understands what I do anyway, so I might as well just call it something random. <laughs> <laughs> so Lianganook, which is of place, an Aboriginal word of place, which is a very, very important thing to be of place. And then yarn, as in yarning, telling a story, Aboriginal people, uh, the methods, the things that we do is sitting around yarning. And that is about getting to the truth, listening to people, being off place, being in place. So yarning is a big thing. Yarning to me implies a relaxed conversation, like you're sitting mm-hmm. there, you're spending time with each other. There's room to listen. Instead of just trying to push mm-hmm. your point home, you're actually listening. <laughs> to sit down and have a yarn. Mm, it's, a, it's a weaving. Yeah, and it's it's yarn about women's culture, women's craft of the yarn and weaving the yarn and knitting and sewing and and it's a full circle really because my office is at the old woolen mills in Castlemaine and the yarn, I found some yarn from the woolen mills as they were closing it down about eight years ago. It's gold. That's my symbol. I, I created the word yarn out of the yarn from the woolen mills. <laughs> that's that's my logo. Um yeah, and I think that's really, it's about women's stories and women's, the crafting and the weaving. And that the weaving together of the stories is, in essence, what we need to do. What It's what empowerment is about. It's about weaving power together and who manages change, who owns change and who is of change. And it, it, it's a weaving process. I teach power and empowerment and I unpack and I've got a whole lot of tools that I use to talk about power and understand power. And there's a couple of different concepts that I've been using lately that people love. One is curate um, or coalesce. So curate is about holding a space where power is shifted. Um, And I think as an empowerment practitioner, that's really what you're doing. You're holding space to shift power. And I guess as an artist, the word curate is nice for me because I understand it in an art sense. As a curator, it's not your work necessarily that's on display, but you're bringing other artists into the room and you're hanging them and you're deciding how they relate to each other in the gallery space. So I think that's a nice word to describe that sort of process. Yes. So I now describe my work as a curator and a translator. So I do a lot of work where I'm translating concepts, clarifying and translating concepts. And so a lot of the really complicated concepts, they need translation. And so often I'm working across three different cultures. So in essence, if a local Indigenous group is trying to apply for some funding, it's around what is the essence of this group? What do they want to do? What is their, not just their cultural survival, but their cultural vitality that they are asserting needs to be maintained and expressed and is vital? And how do they translate that into the funding guidelines, yeah. into the the aspirations and values of the Western world with power and money? Mm. And so without compromising their integrity, how do we translate that? Into the bureaucratic speech. Yeah. And so a lot of my work is is translation. And with my white power, I look at them and use my ability to be a mirror to enable them to tell me what is their cultural vitality and not to compromise it at all 
we're just translating it. We're not compromising it. And so it's it's artful use of power. And so you use the word curate. What was the other term you used? Coalesce. Coalesce. Which is one, we talk a lot about networking and relationships and collaboration, but actually what we're doing, we're doing all of that to coalesce action. And coalesce is about the bringing together of diverse parts into one kind of directional thrust or one one united purpose. So it's, it's movement building. It's a coalescing of diversity. So it might be, you know, some really different actors coming together to support something. Coalescing is a really deep understanding of what I'm contributing and how it enables the bigger thing to, to be achieved. I find as a, you, you've described yourself as a change maker, people, and, and I guess looking at the sustainability and climate change movements, there's, there's often a great resistance to change. <laughs> even if it is potentially for people's benefit. How do you navigate that resistance to change? Yeah. Well, I would argue the opposite, mm-hmm. that there are change makers out there and that different people engage with change in different ways. So to coalesce action on change, we need to find who those people are. And I've got this lovely little tool where I do who are the change makers and what type of change makers are we? And then there's a beautiful dance between them. There's like a relationship between them. So there's the, the outlier innovators and then there's the change leaders and then there's the leaders and then there's the majority and then there's the recalcitrants. So it's the it's the people on the cutting edge. It's the change leaders that are the ones with the ideas and they are dependent upon the innovators to give them good ideas and then they have a relationship with leadership at large. So leadership might be people who are already in council or the board of an organisation. Yeah, or... yeah. So leadership so leadership can represent no change and it can represent change and all different types of change. So the innovative change leaders are a subset of leaders but the innovative change leaders are the ones that pick up innovation. They pick up the ideas from the innovators and they test them and they pilot them and they get them funded and they they get them up and proven and then they can scale them up. So they're using pilots to convince other leaders that this is a good idea. So, for example, in our region, Hepburn Shire has been piloting a zero net emissions plan and they've got that up and now they're facilitating us. And we would, here in Mount Alexander Shire, their direct next-door neighbours, we would be considered leaders still compared to the rest of Australia, but we are relying on their pilot program to help guide us, I guess. Mm. And same with renewable news care. Everybody's watching what they're doing. There's lots of examples of it happening. And once I've got this little tool that you can use to map these people out. Mm -hmm. And in any group, in any culture, in any place, I go through a process of working out who are the people that are maintaining the status quo in this organisation. And every type of person is needed. You've just got to get the right people doing the right things. Yeah, It's like if you asked me, to manage the books, crikey, all hell would break loose. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, so it, it's about, under, so for me during the early times of the pandemic, watching 
how different personalities and different people responded to the pandemic. That was very telling of the type of change maker or the or non-change maker people were. It was fascinating watching people respond. So I did want to talk to you about the pandemic and how that has sort of revealed our society in a way. And I wasn't thinking about specific people and their actions, but the sort of larger idea of how ready are we for what we might see as climate change happens. And so you were instrumental in creating a YouTube series of panel discussions called Castlemaine Commons. Each episode was themed differently and discussed different elements of what you were seeing. What made you want to start that series? As a change maker, for me, the pandemic was the most one of the most exciting moments in my life <laughs> in that the disruption and the the cracks in in society that it erupted presented so many incredible change opportunities. These barriers that as change makers we're constantly coming up against, they're belief and attitude barriers and they were instantly dropped away. Mm. And it was, you know, I was just like going, oh, my goodness, this is just the most incredible opportunity. How can we lean into this, lean into it and be in it and ignite deep, deep reflection? It's, it's that balance between to transform our society for the climate shocks that are coming that are here, that are coming, we need to transform who we are and how we will operate. And here is an incredible opportunity to do that. The barriers you mentioned earlier, I'm imagining, but correct me if I'm wrong, would be things like, oh, we can't possibly do that. It would cost too much. We can't possibly do that. It would take too many resources. Is that sort of things you're thinking of where people are just like, we have to keep things going as they are because that's how things go? Yeah. In change theory, which you know, I, I work a lot in, there's a whole lot of, lot of different change theories. Attitudes and beliefs is a really big one. We change attitudes and beliefs through different mechanisms. We can give people knowledge, give people skills. We can give people um, small grants and resources to sort of like, almost like bribe them to change. Which we would have seen with solar initiatives and subsidies for various things. That's right. That's great examples of it. Yeah, you get a discount, you know, whatever, if you go for this. There's a whole lot of mechanisms. It's, it's behaviour change and a whole lot of different types of change. So belief and attitude is, is, a, is a fairly major barrier. And that instantly fell, fell away during the pandemic. And I just heard it the other day, I think George Monbiot was saying, you know, we can instantly stop the planes flying around the world. We can do that. Look, we snapped our fingers and we did it. I know the clip that you're talking about and I might put that in the links at the bottom because I think it's an excellent little monologue that he does which sort of says, you know, we were able to instantly get the homeless people off the street because they were a pandemic risk. Why couldn't we do that before? Like we could have, we just chose not to. It just revealed what we were choosing rather than some things were presented as necessary when actually they were choices. And I think that's the point he was making. Yes, JobKeeper, done. And it may not be a long-term possibility, <laughs> but if we really arranged ourselves and our society properly, we, it could be a long-term possibility. I mean, the key thing that the pandemic did is, is pull back the curtain of us as consumers it pulled that curtain back and said to us deeply, we are humanity first. We are humans. And the fundamental thing that connects us is humanity. And that is more important than consumption. That is more important than being a worker or a consumer. 
And the pandemic has allowed us to be human, to reach out and be human to each other. And living and existing in this world where we are dominated by um, the market and being a producer and a consumer, that relief, that relief off our shoulders for most people is immense. I am privileged in that I get to go to Papua New Guinea quite a lot and work with people there. And every time I'm in the village, I slip into a completely different economy. It's an economy that, I mean, people call it a subsistence economy or a relational or a circular economy. And it's beautiful because I am valued not as a consumer and a producer. I am valued as something quite different. And that feeling of being in that village is quite remarkable. And that's what the pandemic has given us a glimpse of. It happened in Castlemaine in a few different ways with our neighbourhood resilience groups and, and a lot of encouragement across the world for people to reach out to your neighbour, make sure they're okay. Stuff that, you know, if we lived in a connected society or community, we should be doing anyway. But it took a pandemic for it to become explicit and that expectation to become explicit. And that's what the shows were about. They were 10 shows really looking at different dimensions or perspective or views on that. And it's it's fundamentally about, it's about climate change and it's about resilience. So what do we learn from this moment in time that makes us stronger and better and makes us rethink in preparation for the climate shocks and what we need to, what action we need to take about climate change. And what were some of the highlights to your mind? What were some of the pearls of wisdom that came out of that or some of the thoughts and ideas that really stood out? Well, from my perspective, I really immensely enjoyed the artists' involvement in the program. Artists were involved almost on every program and Declan facilitated the host of the show on artists and understanding art. I think for me, the pandemic has revealed the importance of art, philosophy and religion in that that we need as humanity when we are so disrupted and lost in the in the turmoil of the pandemic. The people that were speaking to me that I was listening to and searching out for were artists and philosophers and, and religious leaders. And that was incredible. That's one thing. Another thing was economics. The economic show was very popular and created a whole lot of very, very interesting debate. And again, it it harks back to what I was saying earlier about being, you know, removing the curtain of, of consumption. And then the other thing was about, I don't know, and we did it subtly in curating the shows, but was always having a very progressive diversity voice in all the shows and doing uh, proactive, progressive, taking questions and listening to voices and um, having that come out was beautiful. What do you mean by that? We had a lot of Aboriginal people involved and they weren't there only because they were Aboriginal. They were there because they are humans and they had lots of great things to say. There was a number of people with disabilities, but they didn't introduce themselves as a person with a disability. They They just have a disability. Lots of young voices, lots of young women. Yeah, so people of colour, young women, people with disabilities, lots of people of different genders. And, yeah, they're not there necessarily speaking on behalf of that minority. So it's not like a token, oh, and here we cut to the person with a disability. It was just all these voices are voices we want to listen to and hear from in all their diversity. So that was done throughout the, the shows and the programs. 
Yeah, it was great. It was really wonderful. And there's lots of new ideas bubbling away for new shows. A number of really interesting shows have been proposed. So like a series of five shows on economics, which would be amazing. There's another idea. Um, I think we're bubbling one up at the moment um, in in prep- with a whole lot of young people in preparation for the student strike uh, action in, in late September. And then there's a beautiful idea to do one four shows to do and listen from listen to four generations and have like a Q and A across four generations of people in in our town and look at the pandemic through intergenerational relationships. And how do we build on those strengths? They all sound like great ideas. (laughs) So the first of the new season will be this week. And it's a youth-based show, as you mentioned. So people can find out more by searching for Castlemaine Commons on YouTube. And also I'll have a link in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com. Now, I guess what I want to tease out a little bit more with you is what do you think think the pandemic has revealed about our preparedness for the shocks of climate change, as you said, the upcoming and current, given our previous bushfire season last summer? Yeah, so for me, the main one is the state system. So then, the, I don't know, I don't want to say neoliberal, but I'm not going to have to because I can't think of how else to describe it. But the neoliberal state that constantly funds, that's, that, that has become underfunded um, because the you know, business will provide the service versus the state. So the arms of the state have become less and less and less. And so project officers or whatever they are, you know, that, that they, you know, we don't, we don't have extinction officers on the ground anymore. We don't, there's no way a council officer can go out and door knock. Uh, yeah, those services don't extend out into the community anymore. Staff are thin on the ground. And I really noticed the brittle nature of the state in its ability to rapidly respond in a number of different ways. Whereas community, um, I mean, you, you could call them volunteers, but I call them active citizens rising up and just doing things because of humanity. And so, like, for example, you know, I'm constantly late to meetings because I see my neighbour who's got dementia walking down the road and I know that his wife has got a sore ankle and can't run after him. They're in their 80s. And so I have to stop and retrieve him and take him home again. That's me. That's a neighbour. That's resilience. That's, I don't have to ring a council officer to come and deliver that service. I can just do it. And so if we've all got that active citizen mentality, we can do anything. Um, versus that attitude of, well, the council have a service and they provide that service and it's confidential and, you know, you have to book an appointment and uh, when you ring up, you get the hotline in Melbourne and, you know, you're only really ringing the office around the corner, but you've got to go via the hotline in Melbourne because everything has been centralised and cut back and blah, blah, blah. But actually, you know, so it's, it's a different understanding of where the service provision is. Do we have to fund a project to do that? Or can we just do it through citizen activity? And if we do it through citizen activity, then the economic trade is one of relations. It's one of relationships of knowing each other and valuing each other and looking after each other. Um, And then we are way more sustainable. We are way more resilient and we are so much less dependent on government services. So for me, I think there's real opportunity there. Yeah, I I did a big um, round of interviews with work with farmers start of last year 
and they were, you know, in, in incredible drought and um, just talking about the lack of leadership and how that there's not leaders on the ground anymore. Maybe, you know, we've all just become slave to the dollar as opposed to the really vibrant, active, you know, communities that are humming away and doing what they do. Yeah. So do you see in terms of how we should move forward to be as prepared as we can be (laughs) while we're also trying to reduce our emissions and prevent catastrophic climate change, we definitely need to be active on that. But in terms of adaptation and becoming prepared as a society for what may come with climate change, do you see the rising up of the community to care for itself as the best road to resilience or should we be demanding that our governments become more involved again and, and less corporatized, less letting go of services? I think there's 50% and 50%. 50% we need to get out on the streets and demand action on Adani and coal and demonstrate and hold our governments to account and hold large multinational corporations to account. Yes, definitely. The other 50% is about resilience and being in place. We've got a lot to learn from Indigenous people and the way they relate to each other and place. And I remember talking to people in Papua New Guinea about the global global economic crisis and they said, oh, that won't affect us. And I said, oh, what do you mean? They don't live within that economy. They have all the food that they would they could want growing organically. They live in a forest. They supply all their own water and food and, yeah, you know, they've got some social issues. Health could be better, access to health service, etc. of course. However, they were not going to be affected by the global economic crisis because they were fully self-sustainable. So for me, we need to learn from Aboriginal people. We need to learn about relationships and how to be in relation, in right relation with each other. We need to learn how to connect to place and be of place which is connection to country and nature. And we need a deep connection to nature to rethink about its role in our spiritual life and our our life. And then fundamentally, we need culture. And as white colonialist Australians, we are bereft of culture. We need lovely, beautiful cultural celebrations of coming of age, of having dinner parties parties together, of having street parties together, of sitting around a table drinking wine for two hours and eventually getting back to work. (laughs) That our culture needs to be front and centre of who we are and what holds us together and work needs to be secondary. So it's it's fun, it's celebration, it's joy, it's it's eating together, it's feeding each other, it's laughing together, and that that needs to be central to our lives. Yes, and I guess once that is true, then when things become tough, we all pull together because we know each other and we trust each other. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, early in the pandemic, there was a group of welfare organisations that got together, everything from state government to council through to a whole lot of the groups in town through to which, which are incorporated and a whole lot of groups that are not incorporated. And it was very amazing to notice who hit the ground running within a week and who was still trying to get themselves organised six to eight weeks later. It was the Aboriginal group that hit the ground running with meal packages within a week. They visited every house. And it's just like that their ability to pivot because they've got the relationships already, because it's not a formal work relationship. It's, it's a holistic relationship of love and generosity. 
you know, whereas some of the other service providers that said, oh, I can't just bring people up because I don't have permission. Or, you know, that's not my role. I have to go to head office. It took, you know, six weeks for head office to tell them whether they could go and ring up, you know, six people at risk. So I guess my my final question for you, how do you see, because I think often causes are kind of disconnected from each other. So the Great Barrier Reef is a cause and the qual in Western Australia is a cause. And we know climate change is there, but they seem disconnected from the refugee cause and people are overwhelmed with how many causes there are. But how do you see social justice and environmental justice overlapping or environmental causes overlapping and interconnecting? How do they impact each other? Yeah, yeah. It, it is the one thing and it's interconnected. We are of nature. Aboriginal people always say we don't own the land whereas we describe Aboriginal people as traditional owners. They say the land owns us. So it's about responsibility. We are responsible for country. So we have an obligation to country to look after it. So we are of nature and of place. There is no social and environmental. It's all the same thing. It's deeply interconnected. We are interconnected beings. And so it always has to be about your individual person, your relationship with one one other person, what, how are you in relation, and then how are you in relation with community and place. So those four things are always at play. So when I say it's about place earlier, people would say, well, why is place so important? Because that's where it all comes together. It's of your place. So what are the issues in your place? And so it's that shifting from siloed thinking to holistic thinking. And the only way to do that to be is of place. So it's like the people that we had on the shows. We were interested in what they had to say in response to the question. Whereas that person's identity was sitting there was, you know, a young black woman with a disability who's an artist. It's just like, so we've popped her in four different silos there and attached her to four different causes. But she's she's a human who lives in our town who has an opinion on that question. So it's it's thinking about things holistically, and the only way to do that is to be of place. So do we have refugees in our community and how do we engage them with Aboriginal art programs that are involved in the high school that lead to jobs? So it's... It's it's multifaceted in place for me, and and for me the dance between here in Papua New Guinea or here in some of the Aboriginal communities I get to travel to, and and the Aboriginal communities here have many different things to teach us and learn from, and I really love the donut economics in that it talks very clearly about living within our ecological boundaries and improving our social conditions. And if we go to Papua New Guinea or remote area Aboriginal Australia up north, they're like the opposite of our town. So they're living within their ecological boundaries, but their social conditions are not great. Whereas our social conditions are quite good. We're not living within our ecological boundaries. So we have a lot to learn from each other. And I think that's a beautiful relationship. And I think it's hard for us relatively affluent mainstream culture people (laughs) to actually really imagine how tough life will be once climate change and its effects happen 
to us. And I don't know if it's just me, I might be speaking for myself. <laughs> but I think it's it's difficult to really conceive of it. And I think that with the pandemic, to go back to that idea, there's still people who really aren't accepting it as as being the serious thing that it is because they just don't they can't like they don't want to it's too big it's too hard to conceive of and it hasn't actually touched us here because we have actually done all of the right things to make sure that it doesn't touch us here in in that social distancing and masks and all of those things but it also that then leaves people open to just not believing it. And I think the same conundrum is true of climate change. If we act on it and do all the stuff, which some people will say is unnecessary and is too hard and we shouldn't have to compromise any of our living standards for the environment and future climate change. If we succeed in that, then we won't see the catastrophic effects as catastrophically. We will still see effects though. And then those people will feel like they're right. Yeah, I'm changing my language to the coming climate shock shocks from from that to the climate shocks that we are experiencing now and it's actually it's not far to look to find somebody that's experiencing the climate shocks all the bushfire affected people from the last season however you know just talking to farmers around here our dairy industry up north of here so Kerrang and Swan Hill and Echuca those places uh, across to Cobram we had 5,000 dairy farmers. It was predicted to have 260 last year. So five years ago, we had 5,000. Now we've got 260. 5,000 to 250. Yes. I was going to say it's half, but that's like... No, yes. <laughs> that's insane. Exactly. So in interviewing all those farmers last year, in one of the jobs I did, they are fully experiencing climate change. And there's no, there's, you know, people don't use the word, but it's, it's people, you know, in interviews crying, intergenerational stress. They're in absolute economic, social and environmental collapse. But, and, you know, these old farmers are just saying we need another round of, you know, the one billion trees. We need to revegetate. And these are the people whose parents and grandparents chopped them all down. And, you know, crying at the table. This is the reality. It's not, it's here. It's now. It's happening. And those you know, firefighters are the same. You know, you go up to the this local CFA, firefighters from this whole region up fighting the fires over summer out in Gippsland. So they came from all Western Victoria, drove their trucks right across. They are not in denial about climate change. They live and breathe it. They know what it looks like. They, they're experiencing it now. And my partner's become a firefighter and the hard, cold reality of actually having somebody on the front line is very frightening. It's always been something that we've done, but these fires are just something else. And seed collectors. I did a workshop with seed collectors. The state government was trying to convince them to collect seed for revegetation uh, two degrees north. So collecting seed from two degrees North, so that's you know it could be fifty kilometres, hundred kilometres north. So they're climate adapted seeding, and the seed collectors just quietly on the side were saying to me, "We've been doing that for over five years. We are the ones out there collecting seed. So we've got these calendars of exactly when that native plant is going to be dropping seed. And because we've noticed climate change, we're we've already been doing that. 
We don't need to wait for the state government to pass a polity to do it because they're out there collecting the seeds, so they know exactly what's happening with those trees and the, and the fact that they're dying out. And they've noticed other species germinating in, in the wrong places. And that the hotter, drier, arid environment that is just two degrees north of us is going to be our environment very soon. Mm-hmm. So anybody that is connected to the environment is has been in climate change and climate shocks for five to ten years at least. So just because we aren't necessarily people that are connected to country, so we don't go walking in country, we don't know country, we don't live and breathe it, that's why we don't know it's happening. But it's happening. And I think also a lot of people living, especially in Castlemaine, have moved here from Melbourne and don't know, they don't have in their body that sense of what this place used to be like 20, 30 years ago, because we've only been here five or 10 years. Something that really changed my world a couple of years ago, David Goodall talks about the somewheres and the anywheres, and he really put a different political perspective on the way I politically analyse the world, as opposed to left and right. And it's just absolutely brilliant. It's just, yeah, really changed my world. So anywheres are people that are usually urban and city and and go off and do a degree and believe that they can be anywhere in the world. And they become the decision-making class and they become the political class and run big programs and they have careers and, you know, they have the audacity to live anywhere in the world. Where the alternative, the, the other side is the somewheres and the somewheres are of place. Trump supporters are defending their place with their militia. Aboriginal people are of place. Farmers and a farming community is of place. So their identity comes from their place, so they know their place. Yeah, so seeing the world in that light. So a lot of Castlemaine people, I believe, are people that have been anywheres that are trying to become somewheres. <laughs> I think that's very true. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. I love it. So how do we, so the anywheres believe in human rights and the anywheres um, pursue actively the isms, so feminism, LGBTQI rights, human rights, things like that. So how can we be of place and hold really deeply those human rights? And that's the culture of this place we need to create in a beautiful celebratory, you know, having a two-hour lunch. So coalesce them somehow. And I think, yeah, there's definitely a shadow side and a bright side to both of those ways of being. Absolutely. That was Natalie Moxham talking about her life and her life's work, change agent and movement builder. To find out more about her and what she does, go to her website, Lianganook Yarn. The link is in the show description at saltgrass.podbean.com, along with many of the other ideas taken from our conversation. My name is Alison Hanley and I've been your host today. Don't forget that you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and please subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. If you enjoy the show, also please tell your friends and share it on the socials. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. This program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and Main FM. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. 
Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com.